0: We're going to be in the book of Ruth today. We're going to explore the book of Ruth and learn from this awesome woman, and this amazing story about neighboring and neighboring in a way that honors God and that comes from God. Because Jesus says this, at the very center of being a God follower, think about this, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so maybe he actually meant that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. We're diving in. Ruth, chapter 1. Um, In the days, here's how the story begins, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. See, as this story begins, we learn right away that it's not a beautiful day in the neighborhood for this family, not in Israel, not during this time. In fact, the author says this is the days of the judges. And if you know anything about biblical history, this was a time period in the nation of Israel that was filled with great lawlessness. It was a, a time of unfaithfulness and idolatry and violence and vengeance. These were very, very bad days. And to make matters worse, there's a famine in the land. And so this little family that we're introduced to thinks that they are going to starve. And so they leave their home. They leave their neighborhood. And Elimelech leads his family to this country called Moab. Moab. And this is a really important part of the story because it it gives us context, it sets the scene for what's to come. The readers in the first century would have known very certainly that Moab is not a good place. The Moabites were the great enemies of God's people. They were the enemies of the nation of Israel. They were pagans. They were idolaters. They worshipped this God named Chemosh. And Chemosh was not a good God. There were some evil and very vile things associated with the worship of this God, Chemosh. And so what we see right away as we dive into this story is the heart of Elimelech. His name, and we're going to notice throughout the book of Ruth that the names of the characters are actually used by the author to teach us some things about what's happening in the story. The name Elimelech means this. My God is king. My God is my highest priority. He calls the shots in my life. He is where I find the safety and security that I seek for my family. So that's his name. That's what his name means. But we discover... Instantly, as the story begins, that his actions do not say the same thing as his name. His actions actually say the opposite. His actions say at the first sign of struggle and difficulty, I'm out. We're bailing. I'm going to look out for me and my own. I am off to a place where God isn't king. Because even though that may be what what I say, what my name means at the end of the day, I don't really find my ultimate security in God. I'm going to go and I'm going to create security for myself. Let me say this, friend, and here's our first point today. Truly loving our neighbors will only happen if God is king in our lives. If God is calling the shots and if he is the driving motivation for how you live and how you neighbor, then you have a chance to love your neighbor as yourself. This, again, is not something that you can muster up on your own strength. You can neighbor well, you can be a decent neighbor, you can be a nice and fine neighbor um, because you feel obligated, because you should do it, because culture says it's what's expected, maybe even because you feel guilty, and that can take you a little bit down the road, but ultimately you will never love your neighbor the way Jesus calls you to love your neighbor if he is not the fuel and the source of your love. If God is king, if he is ruling your life, if he is shaping your heart, then out of that heart, a life of neighboring can and will emerge. But if God isn't king... If something else is king, if truly what's most important to you is comfort or convenience or your image or property value, you may not be a terrible neighbor, you may smile and wave, you may do nice things once in a while, but you will never love your neighbor the way Jesus asks you to love your neighbor. And so before, before we move on, let me flip it around for you. Let me ask you this question, because the reverse is also true. If you look at the attitudes and actions and the time and energy, consider this, that you offer your neighbors. Just think for a minute about the kind of neighbor that you are. And then ask this, what does that reveal about who is king of your life at home? Think about the way you neighbor and it will reveal what the ultimate... Values of your life are in your neighborhood. What does your neighboring reveal about what matters most to you? What would your neighbors say? Well, off to Moab goes this family. Verse 3. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, and the other Ruth just a quick interesting fact about Orpah Um, does anyone know a person with a similar name to Orpah (laughs) you laugh but this is a true thing Uh, Oprah Winfrey was named for Orpah they just accidentally flipped the letters around it was actually named Google it, Google never lies you Google it later, fact check me you'll find that I'm right See, you learn some stuff in church. This is important for your social life and stuff. You're going to drop that, that fact. I know you're going to drop that fact later this week and act like you knew it yourself. I want credit for that. Anyway, <laughs> they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Melon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. I mentioned that names are a big deal in this story, that they kind of tell the story for us. Well, the author is having some fun here. These two boys, Malon and Kilian, know what their names mean? Sick and dying. Sick and dying. Be like introducing, like, hey, come meet my boys, come meet my kids. This is my oldest measles. And uh, this is my younger one, swine flu. Like, a bright future for these kids. I think you're really going to like them. So, the point is this no one's shocked when they die, right? The author's saying, like, these these two kids were, you know, doomed from the beginning. Um, And now Naomi is a widow. She's in exile. She has no sons to take care of her. And so, when she finally gets word that things are starting to look up in Israel, they're starting to get better back home, she makes the announcement. We are going home. I am going back to Israel. And what we find out right away is that her two daughters-in-law are going to go with her. They are actually on the road with her. They are traveling back to Israel when Naomi starts to have second thoughts. Go back, she says, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. And so Naomi says, go back to Moab. And there's this back and forth between she and the girls where she says, go back to Moab. And they say, no, we're with you. Go back. We want to be with you. Four times she urges these young ladies to go back. And Orpah eventually relents and she goes back. But Ruth will not. And Ruth says this. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Think about how much Devotion and commitment and loyalty is woven in to those few verses. My wife reminded me this week that those verses were read at our wedding. I did not remember that at all, which lost me points. So I'm working to make that up. But, um, but we find out here that Ruth is just utterly committed to Naomi. This is this is an unbelievable thing, and and the reason it's so unbelievable is because her decision is shocking. The reason Orpa goes back isn't because she's, you know, just sort of marginally committed, she's a slacker. No, it's because. This is the very clear and logical decision that every young girl would have made in that position. They all would have gone back. It was a no-brainer. To go to Israel as a Moabite woman would have been dangerous and risky and messy and sticky and in no way self-advantageous for these girls. And they all know it. Most of all, Naomi. But that's what Ruth does. That's what she does anyway. She steps into Naomi's story and walks with her. And in doing so, she teaches us our second lesson about neighboring this morning. Truly loving our neighbors requires us to step into their story. Hear that again. To truly love our neighbors the way Jesus wants us and calls us to love them, we have to step into their story. See, we started off this series with this grid, this challenge. To learn the names. If you were here with us in week one, we said, Do you know the names of the people in the homes around you? Can you name, even let alone loving your neighbors, can you name your neighbors? It's like the chart of shame. We're all a little bit embarrassed if we can't do it. And some of you did it and there's some arrogance forming in you and just kill that. But we set off on this assignment, if you don't know the names of the people in your neighborhood, the people living around you, figure out those names. At least discover their names. And then start to learn about who they are, what's going on in their lives. And how's that going, by the way? Don't forget about that, because there will be a final exam. Um, We are going to retest here in a couple weeks, so keep working on that chart. And then last week, Pastor Matt talked about just making time just being available to your neighbors. To spend one hour, remember the challenge? One hour out in front of your house this past week um, at some time during the day when others would be out, not at six in the morning, and just be there with no agenda, available to connect with neighbors, with someone that maybe God would bring that needed to chat with you. I, I did that this week. I was out yesterday for a little over an hour actually and it hailed the entire time. and No one came out. I don't, don't really know why. It's like, this is May. Welcome to May. Um, But uh, did you do that? Did you spend an hour? And then Matt said, take it a step further and pray. Pray for the people around you. Just pray for God's blessing on them. Pray for God to open up opportunities to make connection and to love on people. Just to to spend time and to pray. And all those things are great first steps. Names and time and prayer. But at some point, friends, if you do these things and you ask God to use you in your neighborhood, I believe this to be true, a neighbor will emerge who has a story of hurt or pain or need or struggle and then you will have the big decision to make. You see, all this other stuff, that's just prerequisite. That's just the basics of neighboring. You see... The next step is where we get serious. And even though it's not simple or convenient or risk-free, the question is this. Will you step into the story of that neighbor, the story of their hurt or pain or struggle or difficulty, and will you walk that road with them? Will you walk in the story of your neighbors. And maybe you don't have the time or the bandwidth to do that for all eight people living around you. All eight people probably don't want you in their story. But here's the question. Do you have room in your life? Do you have space in your heart? Do you have the desire in your soul to walk in the story of at least one? To not just neighbor on a surface level in a surface-level way, but to neighbor by diving all in with someone. See, the truth about me is this, and maybe you can relate to this. Sometimes I like to do ministry to get involved deeply in the lives of people who don't live real close to me. And I have to ask myself, what's behind that? What's driving that? Why do I want to go all in with people who live other places, but when it comes to my neighbors, I kind of want to hold them at, at arm's distance? And you know what? Here's the reason. I, I kind of want some space when I'm at home. I, I don't, I don't want to have to be all Jesus-y all the time. If my neighbors know that I'm a Christian, if my neighbors figure out that I'm a pastor, and they all know, by the way. But then then I'm accountable for how I act. And they're always there, and they're always watching. (laughs) Aren't they? And yet Jesus says that when I am king in your life, then you'll naturally live the way you're supposed to live. And so to love our neighbors is not... A high call it's actually just the the basic norms of being a follower of jesus and so maybe you're thinking i don't want to have to be that jesus see right where i live and jesus says that's exactly where you need to be jesus see the most ruth does this she steps into this story and now she and naomi are on the road It's just the two of them now, Orpah's gone. If the two of them against the world, this is what theologians call a biblical chick flick, sort of an ancient version of Thelma and Louise. They are going for it. Here we go. And eventually they get back to Israel. Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. so so the two ladies are on the road they arrive in Bethlehem just as this big harvest this big celebration is happening and do you notice the adjective here the new description the new way Ruth is described as soon as they enter Israel see before in Moab she was just what was her name? Ruth and now in Israel she's Ruth the Moabite now she's the Moabite woman you know, this, is kind of, this is a side note, this is not in my notes so we'll see if this works, this reminds me of like an episode, the episode from Friends, remember the movie Friends remember Joey, the one roommate who's not the brightest bulb in, in, the, you know, in the chandelier and uh, he, it dawns on him one day as they're all eating Chinese food, he says you know what, in China, in China this just must be food anyway, I thought that was funny um don't wing it and go off your notes. Okay, back to the notes, back to the notes. So now all of a sudden we're in Israel and she's not just Ruth, she's Ruth the Moabite. And I want to point this out to you, friends. It is okay for people to be different. Differences are good. We are created by our Heavenly Father different. Acknowledging our difference is actually a really good and honorable thing. We do not all have to be the same. But what we are seeing here in Ruth and the danger that we must always watch out for is this. Letting people's differences define them. Letting people, forcing people to be defined by how they're different. Now she's just the Moabite. That's all she is. She's the other. She's the not one of us. She's the one of them. And friends, one of the beautiful things about the gospel is that it challenges and crushes, I believe, these kinds of labels. It takes people into new depths and says they are so much more than the labels that we give them. The gospel always actually brings the us and the them together. And we're going to talk about that more in a bit. Now now they're in Israel, Ruth and Naomi, and this is what uh, Ruth says to her mother-in-law. Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. You see, in the Old Testament, God actually instructs his people to do this sort of sloppy farming. Um, They're instructed to not go back over their fields a second time during harvest. They're instructed to not pick up the wheat that was dropped when they gathered the first time. They are not to beat their olive trees more than once to try and get the last bit of olives off the branches. They are to harvest their crops, friends, in such a way that they intentionally leave food behind so that the poor and the needy and those who live around them can come and pick it up. And God has always given this very clear instruction to His people. And here's why. He knows that the human heart, every human heart, our nature, the nature of our hearts is to very efficiently And very systematically move towards using all of our resources for ourselves. Because that's the inclination of my heart and that is the inclination of your heart. Without interference of the Holy Spirit, without the interference of the Word of God, we naturally drift towards how do I pick more, gather more, have more for me. And so way back, even in the Old Testament, God says time and time again, discipline yourself to be generous towards your neighbors. Look for ways to give your stuff and time and energy away. You see, friends, generosity is not just about giving money at church. Generosity for a Christ follower, someone with whom the Spirit of God lives, is a life posture that we are to take with all of the people that live around us. Truly loving our neighbors means living lives of generosity at home. And friends, this certainly involves our stuff. This certainly involves loaning a neighbor an egg or a cup of milk or a snow shovel during a a brutal winter. But it goes so much farther than this. It also involves our time. It means being generous with your attention. To not just be there physically, but to be present mentally. It involves our attitudes. It involves forgiveness. Do you have any neighbors that need you to be generous with your forgiveness? Anyone God might be asking you to be generous with your forgiveness with? Here's something to talk about in your community group this week. What is a question I want you to consider? What does a life of generosity look like for me in my neighborhood with my neighbors what would it look like for me to be known in my little neighborhood as a person who embodies generosity where your neighbors would say that person is so generous not just with their stuff but with their entire life what would that look like for you back to Ruth she's been a great neighbor to Naomi but now she'll go out to into the fields and she's going to see if she can find someone who will be a good neighbor to her And it just so happens she winds up in a field of a man named Boaz. And friends, throughout this chapter, Boaz is extremely generous to Ruth. He does not treat her like a Moabite, like one of them. Instead, he values her. He honors her. He looks for ways to bless her. In fact, Boaz is such a great neighbor that not only is Ruth blessed, but Naomi is blessed as well. There's this sort of ripple effect that happens... Through Boaz's neighboring, the ripple effect of blessing, it goes right through Ruth and on, even into the life of Naomi. Now remember back at the beginning of the story when I told you that names were a big part. Do any of you know what the name Naomi means? Anyone know? Pleasant. Oh, it's up on the screen. Betrayed by the tech guy. Okay. Um, or you guys were helped by the tech guy. You can see that either way. Yeah, Naomi means pleasant, positive, nice to be around, a good, solid, Mary Poppins, sort of optimistic, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, disposition. That is who Naomi is. It's what her name means. But right at the beginning of this story, if you'll remember, things go terribly wrong for Naomi. Things go really bad when she heads off to Moab with her family. And when she comes back to Israel, years later, all the women see her and they greet her and they say, Hey, it's Naomi. Is that Naomi? It's Naomi. She's back. And Naomi says, No, do not call me Naomi any longer. Call me Mara. And Mara, friends, does not mean Mary Poppins. Mara means bitter. You see, she's not pleasant now. Now she's bitter. She's not optimistic anymore. Now she's filled with pessimism. And Naomi uses this word. It's the word tikvah. Say that with me. Tikvah. It's the Hebrew word for hope. And it literally means accord. Accord. And here's what Naomi says. She says, life has made me so bitter and pessimistic that I don't even have tikvah. I don't even have a cord. There's not even a thread of hope in me that things are going to work out. Don't even have a thread of hope left. And that's where Naomi was when she and Ruth got back to Israel. But then, Naomi hears about Boaz about the kind of neighbor he is being to Ruth. And all of a sudden, Tikvah begins to emerge again. There's hope. There's just this, this thread of something to hold on to in Naomi's life once more. And Mara starts to become Naomi again. The bitter negativity is melting away and positive potential is growing all because of the hope that she has found in Boaz's neighboring. And because of that hope, now Naomi is back to being herself. Now she's organizing and devising and conniving and plotting and scheming and planning because friends, hear this, hear this today. There was so much power and hope. The thing every human soul needs, the fuel that our souls run on, is the fuel of hope. Without hope, the human spirit will die. Because hope motivates and hope inspires and hope keeps us going and helps us dream and enables us to take risks and pushes us to be and become the kind of people that God created us to be. Friends, you show me someone without hope and I will show you a life that is not doing much. You ever notice that people who have no hope don't take much much action? Not a lot going on, not a lot of drive, but you take that same hopeless life and you add just a cord, just a dose, just a thread of hope, and you may not even recognize it. And that's why, friends, truly loving our neighbors means this being agents of hope in the lives of people that live around us. Being agents of hope. You ever think of yourself that way? You see, this is just a mindset change that I think we as Christ followers need to make. We we need to stop thinking of ourselves as moral people, good people, people of truth, and we need to start to think of ourselves as people who are agents and conduits of the ultimate hope of the universe. We need to think of ourselves as people who bring hope into the lives of others. Why? Not because we're so hopeful, but because of the hope that we've been given. We should be the most hopeful people in all the world because we have the greatest hope this world has ever seen. Let me ask you this. Anyone in your neighborhood in need of some hope? Anyone just hanging on by a thread? Is there anyone around you who needs help or encouragement or a listening ear? Someone who will take time to just truly care. To not just say some words, to not just do lip service, but to spend time and energy and resources and energy to offer hope in a practical way to someone else. Is there anyone in your world like this that's just screaming, begging, dying for someone to inject some hope into their life. What would it look like for you to be a hope bringer in your neighborhood? What if you just went home and just tacked that banner on the front of your house, right? Figuratively. I mean, you could do it literally too, but figuratively. A house that brings hope to this neighborhood. What would it look like for you to live into that and live out of that? see, that's what Boaz is. He is this glimmer of hope for these two women, and their story starts to change. And from here, this story of neighboring actually takes a radical shift, a bit of a turn, and a courtship begins to develop. A dating relationship emerges between Ruth and Boaz, and because it's Mother's Day, not Valentine's Day, and because this is a neighboring series, not a romance or dating series we're going to save this part of the story for another time and we will come back and go through the book of Ruth at some point like verse by verse it'll be a great thing but I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to the climax of this story Ruth and Boaz at the end are married the relationship goes that far and they have a son and Naomi is a grandmother and she becomes like a second mother to this young boy And at the end of this story, the author author offers us this one amazing detail, this one final piece of information that every single Israelite reader would have noticed and been amazed by when they read this story. Right at the end of the book, here's what the author writes. Then Naomi took the child, this is her grandchild, took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said... Naomi has a son. Like, they can't believe. They saw her when she rolled into town, looking like death, and now they've seen what God has done in her life, and they just are blown away. Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And then here's, listen to this. Here's the part that would blow everyone away. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. You see, it turns out that God was at work in this story, orchestrating and accomplishing things they never could have imagined. And think about this. David, the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel, was actually not a pure-blood Israelite. Do you ever know that? Do you ever think about that? I did not even realize that until this week. King David, the king of kings, right? Right? the king that everyone looked to and longed for and, and, and yearned for even after he was gone, the Israelite of all Israelites, he had some Moabite in him. And the message for Israel in this story was very clear. The greatest of us was also one of them. You see, friends, truly loving our neighbors will blur the lines between us and them every single time. See, maybe you have some neighbors that aren't like you, that don't look like you, that don't act like you, that don't live like you, that don't behave like you, that don't believe like you. But here's what the Bible says, they were created like you. Here's what the gospel says, the line between us and them has been destroyed. Because you want to know something else that's amazing? Who was the distant descendant of King David that we learn about in the New Testament? Jesus. You see, the king of kings, the ultimate king, the ultimate savior, the one true, not just Israelite, but human being for all time, the savior of not just a nation, but of the entire world. It turns out that he was not even a a pure Israelite. Even Jesus had a little Moabite in him. You see, in Jesus, what we discover is this. There is no us and them. The line between us and them has been utterly destroyed. And friends, you learn that when you love the other. You learn that when you say like, there's them and here's us, but I'm going to step across the line and what you discover is this. The us is actually a lot more like the them than we could ever have possibly imagined. You see, when we love our neighbors, when we step out into the stories of other people, what we discover is this, God still has some work to do in us. He's going to use them to shape us as we discover that we're a lot more like them and that they're a part of us. The Savior of the world was one of us and one of them. There is no more us than them so this morning friends I want to invite you to the table and I want you to pause you this morning because we come to the table every week and sometimes it can just be routine and sometimes it can be the part of the service where you're thinking about Mother's Day lunch so Mother's Day lunch will come stop thinking about Mother's Day lunch Carolyn don't think about the big gift for later right now okay <laughs> now I want you to come to the table and remember why you can't step out into the life of the other because God The God of the universe stepped out into your life and he did it through much cost to himself. He did it through the death of his one and only son. And it's his grace and his mercy and his compassion poured out into into our lives that fuels us to go and love the others in our world with the same love that he's offered so as you come to the table this morning I want to ask you to do this I want you to come remembering and realizing declaring again that your source of hope and victory and life in this world solely rests not in your behavior not in your performance as a neighbor but in the cross but I also want you to come with the name of a neighbor a neighbor that maybe the Lord is laying in your heart and a neighbor that you need to share that kind of love and grace and mercy with someone who lives right in your neighborhood, right near you. So come this morning, remember how good and gracious and powerful our God is, and then ask Him to do His good work in you, through you, in the lives of those around you. Come to the table when you're ready.